Welcome to C3 Church Tugra. You're about to hear a great message from one of our guest speakers. Get ready to be inspired to live your best life. Father, we give you this precious time together we've got here tonight. God, we ask that your spirit would speak to us. We know that we can do nothing except by your enabling. And so we ask that as we look together at these things, that you would help us to gain understanding, that those objectives would be met, but mostly, God, that you would meet with us, each one of us, whether we know you, whether we're here wanting to understand more, whether we're seeking to know you, and this is part of our journey, that God, you'd meet us where we're at and that we would encounter you tonight. We ask it in the name of Jesus. If you believe with that, say amen. 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 Could I get you to turn to Genesis 1.1? <clears throat> That's a pretty good place to start, huh? Right in the beginning. 1.1. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> Tonight we're going to be comparing two worldviews. Have you heard that term worldview before? A worldview. It's a, it's a good term. I like it. A worldview is your understanding of the nature of reality. What's real? What's it all about? And so we're going to be looking at a biblical worldview. And we are going to be looking at the worldview which is prevalent in the world and education media and other places, which uh, is saying that it wasn't God who created, but it came about by a process. And so let's begin with the biblical worldview, Genesis 1.1. And it says there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. It doesn't try and prove God. A biblical worldview assumes God, that he was already there in the beginning and that he indeed is creator of the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. Biblical worldview. Now what follows from that is that he created everything that you and I, people, were created by God. In fact, the Genesis 1 account, a little bit further down, if you go to verse 27, says that. So God created man in his own image. This is mind-boggling. It's extraordinary. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So people are made to be like God. We carry his image. Uh, In theology, we call the bits of us that are like him his communicable image attributes. There's some things of God that we are not like. We are not all-knowing or powerful or everywhere. Only He is like that. But we can be creative like Him. We can love and be loved. We can appreciate beauty. We can have a moral conscience. There's all sorts of things that are so extraordinary about us that He actually His desire is just to hang out with us and and to enjoy us. That's how awesome he made people. That's just 
That's an incredible thing. And inherent in that, that he made us in his image, is that we have intrinsic value. That, That you're not valuable because you do something. You're not valuable because of what you can achieve. You're not valuable because of your background, your socioeconomic situation, your education, whatever. You're valuable just because you are created by God. See, this is the foundation of all Christian ethics, is that human life has extraordinary extraordinary value because we are made in the image, likeness of God says it like this in Psalm 139. I love this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Check that out. That is extraordinary. I've heard Pastor Phil Pringle say it like this. He didn't have one of you. And he wanted one of you. So we made one of you. That is how awesome and valuable we are as created beings in the eyes of the Creator God. It's an amazing thing. There's all sorts of messages that could tell you that you do not have value, that for one reason or another you are worthy or worthless or whatever, but the bottom line here from God is that you have extraordinary value. And flowing from that is extraordinary purpose. Because if he made us, he made us for a purpose. To know him and to make him known. My goodness, that is amazing. And yet, that worldview that we are made is not the dominant worldview in the world around us. That's not the worldview that you hear in the popular media. It is not the worldview that is taught in school or university. It is not the worldview that every time there is a nature documentary on television is the worldview of that nature documentary. I've got to say for me and my walk with God, it grieves me because the glory for creation should be given to the creator. And there's times where I'll watch those docos and turn the sound down because I love what I'm seeing, but I hate what I'm hearing. Because the glory for creation is being given to a random process of novelty over a long period of time. This worldview is not that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's more like this. That in the beginning, the particles came from nothing. And the particles became complex living things. And the particles, the living things became aware and the living things conceived of God. Right, you understand what that's saying? That over time, inorganic things became organic, they became alive, they went from single-celled to multi-celled to something as complex as us and self-aware like we are and that in time we made up the idea of God. God. Now that worldview, if you follow it through to its logical conclusion, actually robs humanity of any value whatsoever 
and any sense of purpose. Because that worldview would say that all you are is carbon, hydrogen and oxygen with a few trace elements and that you are just a part of an evolving species. And the best you can do is reproduce, have some offspring and contribute to an evolving species. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't do it for me as far as purpose is concerned. That doesn't help anyone with regard to value. And in fact, that has been the underlying worldview of things like eugenics, which is when people try and mess with human genetics by removing from the gene pool people who they deem to be inferior, as in Nazi Germany. And so <clears throat> this clash of worldviews, I've got to tell you, I reckon it's, it's got more fierce in recent times. And the way it's put out there is that it's faith versus science. Is that, is that what you've heard? All right. Um, and, and maybe if someone's feeling kindly disposed towards you, they'll go, look, I've got science, you've got faith, and that's nice for you. Or they might say, I've got science and your faith is the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity, if they're not too, feeling too happy about religion. But is it really faith versus science? Let me read for you something. This is from an author called Bill Bryson. This guy's a great writer. Has anyone here ever read Bill Bryson? Yeah, yeah, a couple of people. This uh, is from his chapter, How to Build a Universe. Pretty cool. From the book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. <clears throat> and uh, I'm just going to uh, read for you what uh, Bill Bryson says about the beginnings. And uh, maybe just while I'm reading, try and guess what worldview he holds, whether it's it just happened or whether it's God did it. <clears throat> a proton is an infinitesimal part of an atom, which is itself, of course, an insubstantial thing. Protons are so small that a little dib of ink, like the dot on this eye, is it eye right there? <laughs> can hold something in the region of 500,000 million of them, or rather more than the number of seconds it takes to make half a million years. So protons are exceedingly microscopic, to say the very least. Now imagine if you can, and of course you can't, shrinking one of those protons down to a billionth of its normal size into a space so small that it would make a proton look enormous. Now pack into that tiny, tiny space about an ounce of matter. Excellent. You are now ready to start a universe. I'm assuming, of course, that you wish to build an inflationary universe, right? An expanding if you'd prefer instead to build a more old-fashioned standard Big Bang universe, you'll need additional materials. In fact, you'll need to gather up everything there is, every last mote and particle of matter between here and the edge of creation and squeeze it into a spot so infinitesimally compact that it has no dimensions at all. It's known as a singularity. You're enjoying this? He's a good writer, isn't he? In either case, get ready for a really big bang. Naturally, you will wish to retire to a safe place to observe the spectacle. Unfortunately, there is nowhere to retire to because outside the singularity, there is nowhere. When the universe begins to expand, it won't be spreading to fill a larger emptiness. 
The only space that exists is the space it creates as it goes. It's natural but wrong to visualize the singularity as a kind of pregnant dot hanging in a dark, boundless void. But there is no space, no darkness. The singularity has no around around it. There is no space for it to occupy, no place for it to be. We can't even ask how long has it been there, whether it's just been lately popped into being like a good idea or whether it's been there forever, quietly awaiting the right moment. Time doesn't exist. There's no past for it to emerge from. And so from nothing, our universe begins. (laughs) Uh, What worldview do you think Bill Bryson has? Creation? Or it just happened? Creation? Just happened? Yeah, just happened. Hmm. I listen to that and I'm going, go God, that's awesome, I love that. You decided to make it happen and from nothing, kabam, you spoke and it all came into being. My goodness. Now, does that view require faith? It does. I wasn't there. So I know him as my Lord and my Saviour. I wasn't there at the beginning, but I know him. And as I look around, as I look at what's been created, I look at that as evidence of a creator. I think there's one step, though, that requires even more faith than that. To look around at all the extraordinary world and universe around us and to say nothing created all of that from nothing. Let's be honest, this is not faith versus science. It is two faith worldviews that are both looking at evidence and then are reviewing the evidence on the basis of their worldview and using scientific methods to do it. But it is not faith versus science. They are both, they are both faith worldviews that use scientific methods to explore the world around them. So this is what we're looking at. We're going to spend a little bit of time now. Why don't we look at the atheistic view, Darwinian theory of evolution, and then we'll get from that, look at some of the challenges with it. Uh, Who's studied Darwin at school at some stage or university? Okay, I'll just touch a few of the points as by way of reminder. Uh, 2009 was the international year of Darwin. 200 years since his birth, 150 years since he published on the origin of species and the movie creation came out did anybody see that that was a flop huh (laughs) and that was a movie that celebrated the life of darwin i saw it now it's atheistic in that it attempts to explain everything by natural processes that take god out of the picture It's trying to say you don't need a creator. We can have all this stuff around us by a bunch of natural processes over a long time. Darwinian evolution tends to go hand in hand with the Big Bang Theory. And at the moment, Big Bang, um, I can remember when I was at uni, Big Bang was about 6 million years ago. It's now about 13 million, sorry, 6 billion years ago. It's now about 13 billion years ago. 
And so it kind of goes that there was from nothing, the bang. Matter expanded out from that. From that, uh, galaxies were formed. Solar systems were formed. In one of those was a planet that was, it had the Goldilocks position. It was just right for life. The right distance from the sun. The right orbit. So it didn't get too cold or too hot. It had water, H2O, that thing which has got to be there for there to be life. It had all these conditions and it was surrounded by a soup of chemicals. And there was lightning zapping the soup and simple chemicals over time became more complex. In fact, they became so complex that you get chemicals like proteins and DNA. And these chemicals joined together and became, uh, they, they had a membrane around them and became the first cell and, and they were able to reproduce. And so the first life came. And from that first life came all life. Because life, even its simplest form, is so complicated. No one is saying, it happened here, it happened there. It is so complex and so unlikely and so remote that it happened that it maybe happened just one place by random chance and it all came from that. And it went from simple to complex and you know you might see um something like if you just go the next slide actually yeah that one so has everyone seen that sort of thing so you've got the the tree of uh of evolution you've got the the simple single cell and everything comes from that until you get the more complicated ones and then you've got the uh, human evolution from uh, various primates apes right through to, to uh, modern man. And the way it happened was that you get evolution from one species to another by mutations and the selection of beneficial mutations. Now, did that ring a bell, what I just said? <laughs> huh? A mutation is when something goes wrong with the DNA, when it's being copied. And even though that generally is really bad, what evolutionists are saying is if you've got enough time, some of them are good and the offspring will be more able to survive and reproduce and because they survive and reproduce, they pass on those positive traits to their offspring and if you have that little by little over a long period of time, you get a whole new species arising. So, you might have heard it like this. David Attenborough, Life on Earth, let me read for you from chapter 6, The Invasion of the Land. <clears throat> <clears throat> One of the most crucial episodes <laughs> in the history of life took place some 350 million years ago in a freshwater swamp. Fish began to haul themselves out of water and become the first backbone creatures to colonize the land. To cross this frontier... They, like the first terrestrial invertebrates, had to solve two problems. First, how to move around out of water. And second, how to obtain oxygen from the air. Now, <clears throat> thank you, thank you. <clears throat> when you just say that stuff, 
350 million years ago come out of the water into the air two problems to solve how to get oxygen from air instead of water and how to move around if you don't think about it too much you just go yeah yeah but if you think about the physiological and structural changes that are required for that they are mind-bogglingly complex mind-bogglingly complex and and what it is requiring is the addition of information and complexity and coordination which is just extraordinary and it's requiring it all to happen by random chance now what I'd like to propose is three difficulties for this theory three difficulties that it all just happened by random chance I could look at a lot more but given time we'll just look at three firstly the fossil record okay so if we have got a creature over here and there's a positive mutation and it produces an offspring that's a little bit different and able to survive and reproduce and that species changes a bit now evolution it's true no one ever talks about going bam this species to that it's always little by little little by little little by little over a long period of time is that right so you've got Mutation, positive change. Mutation, positive change. Mutation, positive change. Eventually, over millions and millions of years, no longer looking like, not even able to breed with that species, a completely different species. Surely, if that process is little by little, over a long period of time, from this species to this species, surely, if you look at the fossil record, you shouldn't just have them and them in the fossil record, you should have numerous intermediate examples. Would that be a fair assumption? Darwin wrote, if my theory be true, numberless intermediate varieties linking close together, all the species of the same group must surely have existed. This is an old book was written in about 1980 who wasn't yet born okay this book quotes Newsweek reporting on a scientific conference of fossil biologists right paleontologists this is the report from Newsweek 3rd of the 11th 1980 the missing link between man and apes is merely the most glamorous of a whole hierarchy of phantom creatures. In the fossil record, missing links are the rule. The more scientists have searched for the transitional forms that lie between species, the more they have been frustrated. Evidence from the fossil record now points overwhelmingly away from classical Darwinism that most Americans learned in high school that new species evolve out of existing ones by gradual accumulation of small changes, each one of which helps the organism survive and compete in the environment. So that was about 170 years of looking. Since that was written, there's been another 30 years. 
Have they been found? No. They're not there, ladies and gentlemen. It's a killer for this theory. The second one, which I, I won't go into in too much detail, but we'll just make mention of, mutations never add information and complexity. A mutation is when there is an error, a breakdown, a mistake. It's when the code is not copied right. What it results in is the death of the organism or that the organism doesn't function right. It certainly doesn't help them to do better and survive and reproduce. And yet if you talk to people, they'll say, because this is so much in the mindset and the psyche, they'll say, don't you see mutations all around you? Like when bacteria become antibiotic resistant in a hospital. Isn't that an example of a mutation? Well, is it? If you've got a population of bacteria numbering squillions, right? They're very small and there's a lot of them and you don't apply bacteria, sorry, and you don't apply antibiotic in the dose that's going to just kill them all, but you apply it so that some that are naturally resistant survive and reproduce, guess what that's going to produce? A population that is resistant. Has any new information been added? No. It was already there. It wasn't a mutation, ladies and gentlemen. It was already there. But our world is so accustomed to thinking about mutations, they go, oh, that was a mutation, new information. It's not. It was already there. But the third thing, this is the one I just want to spend a bit of time on, is evidence of design. Irreducible complexity. It's a great term. Who's heard that word irreducible complexity before? It's a really cool concept. Check this out. What is it? Irreducible complexity. <clears throat> uh, I think it might be the next slide. There we go. Something that cannot be explained through the gradual addition of small changes over time, each one of which bestows a benefit for survival and reproduction. Something which is irreducibly complex only has a benefit when it's fully formed. Not that there's a benefit for every little step that would be required to form it. Example. So this morning before I went to church, I shaved. And um, if I cut myself while shaving, what was going to happen with that cut? Would I, should I have called out, Amanda, I'm going to bleed to death. Quick, help me. Not unless I'm a hemophiliac. What's going to happen? The blood will clot. Now, human blood clotting mechanism requires 12 incredibly complicated protein molecules. And they kick into this process just at the right point in the process. Now, let's think of that coming together bit by bit. What if you had one of those incredibly complicated protein molecules? Would that make the blood thicken up a bit? No difference. What if you've got three of them? No change whatsoever. Five? Nothing. What if you've got 11 of the 12? It will do nothing whatsoever. The only benefit 
is bestowed when that mechanism is fully in place. It is irreducibly complex. And no one is going to look at those 12 molecules and say, in one hit, a mutation produced them. No one's got the faith for that. No one's got the belief that I'll say that would happen. And yet, irreducible complexity is what is all around us in living things. It's not like, oh, Pat, have you got another example of one of them irreducibly complex things? It's all of living stuff. The eye is irreducibly complex. Uh, the way that bacteria get away, around with their little flagella motor is irreducibly complex. Everything that's living is irreducibly complex. One of my favorite irreducibly complex characters is the bombardier beetle. Check him out. So, <clears throat> let me read for you about the uh, bombardier beetle. Bombardier beetle was studied by two German chemists who discovered that it's got two chemicals in its body, hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone. When mixed together, you get an explosion. Now, how can he carry these two chemicals around without exploding? He carries a third chemical called an inhibitor. The two chemicals are mixed with the inhibitor and stored in two chambers in its body until needed. Then when a predator approaches, the little beetle squirts the two liquids together and adds a fourth chemical, an anti-inhibitor. The resulting action is boom, hot, it's actually at 100 degrees, right? Hot, irritating, foul-smelling gas is blown straight into the face of the predator. Now, the fact that it's able to do that is a marvel. Even more interesting is how it could have evolved that feat. Imagine hundreds of millions of years ago, this little beetle evolves from another creature and is containing in its body all of these chemicals. Along comes a predator wanting to eat it. Now keep in mind, it's the first of its kind to have evolved this gift. It has to figure out just how much hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone to mix with the inhibitor, how much to mix with the anti-inhibitor, what moment to do so, and keep in mind, if it doesn't get it right the first time, Boom, there goes the family tree and future descendants. So, <clears throat> this is a very good example of irreducible complexity. You can't actually look at it happening step by step, but in its final action and function, it is so complex that it could never have arisen as is. But it has no benefit unless you've got the full deal. Right? Irreducibly complex. Let's have a moment looking at the cell. Who's here has ever looked down a light microscope at a cell? Let's have a look at that cell. So <clears throat> there we've got a, a, a poplar leaf. It looks a bit sort of blobby and ancient, doesn't it? <clears throat> I remember not being that impressed. Um, probably in, in biology at school, you might have looked at an onion cell. Does that... Yeah, because they're really big and they stain nicely. And so... <clears throat> So we're looking at that. What's the bit in the middle, the, the black blob? The nucleus. Cool. We've got a cell wall around it, and then we've got this sort of blobby-looking stuff. It doesn't look very complicated under a light microscope. Like, not a lot's happening in there. A bit ancient. A bit simple. We know it's not the case now, because we can check things out with electron microscopes. And what we are discovering is mine. Goodness, it is so complex. 
what is happening in one cell defies belief. It is extraordinary. You know, um, those things called proteins are extraordinarily complicated chemicals. In one cell like that, there is between 50,000 and 100,000 proteins doing, carrying things, making stuff, uh, causing reactions to happen. They've all got special jobs and they all do these special jobs. Now, for the protein to do what it's got to do, it's made up of something else you've heard of. You might even have them in dietary supplements. Amino acids. So for a protein, it's to do what it does, it's got to have amino acids in just the right order. But like this, one day when I had far too much time on my hands, I counted that. That's got 110 amino acids. Now, for a protein to do what it's got to do, carry a chemical from here to there, build something, make a reaction happen, all those amino acids have to be in the exact correct order. One of the 110 missing, not in the right order, it just won't work. And then, what do they actually look like? Well, here's a, a go at looking at a uh, <clears throat> protein molecule. Now, to you and I, that looks like chaos. Do you know what that is? That is exactly what it's got to look like to do what it's got to do. If it doesn't look just like that, it won't do it. Whether it's like hemoglobin and carrying oxygen around the blood, or whether it's like collagen and, and, and giving us strong ligaments, or whether it's like keratin and making our skin and our fingernails, or in my case, when I was younger, hair. <clears throat> it's got to be just right to do all these things. Why don't we just have a quick look at what's happening inside one cell. Uh, we've got a movie file here uh, put together by Harvard University. And what they're doing is showing a little story. And that story, what they're showing is what happens when our body sends a message to a white blood cell that there's a problem. Right? So the white blood cell is zooming along a blood vessel. It stops, leaves the blood vessel <clears throat> and goes out to deal with the problem and what it's showing you is some of the things happening inside this cell I want you to check it out right one cell let's look what's happening inside thank you right, there's the red blood cells white blood cells going along the outside that's a close-up as they sort of roll along to go inside the cell now it's showing us some of the things that are happening some of the structures that hold it together and the amazing thing with some of these structures is that they come together do their job and when they're finished, they disband and go. That is an enzyme cutting the structure just at the right spot. 
is a protein. This is a microtubule. That's like a highway inside the cell. When it's done the job, it disbands. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a protein. It's carrying along the microtubule a bag of products the cell's made from one spot to another. There you're seeing some of the parts of the cell. They're called organelles. They've all got specific functions. Okay, that's the nucleus. Coming out of the nucleus is an RNA with the code from the DNA. It gives the code to the organelle and it gets read. It reads the code and makes the protein. Look, the protein goes off to go and do something. Here's another one. DNA, RNA being read, the protein goes into the nucleus. There goes our Walker protein on its way. Self-producing. Lots of products that are needed. Showing coordination, not just complexity, but coordination. Now, signals given, and these proteins, they stand. A connection happens, the white blood cell stops, flattens out, and goes off to deal with the invader into the body. How good's God? <laughs> that is amazing. And that was showing us what's happening inside one cell with a specific function. Now, one cell's as simple as it gets. You and I are not just a cell. We've got cells joined together into tissue tissue into organs, organs into systems, systems that are coordinated and work so that you and I are these extraordinary created beings that we are. And in us, there's between, I wrote it down here, 60 and 100 trillion cells. Romans 1.20 puts it like this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So whether it's small or whether it's big, look at this. <clears throat> That's a photo from one of the bushwalks I go on. I, I actually love going on bushwalks. Every now and then I disappear for about six days in the bush with a bunch of mates. And that was, that's a photo in Tassie. Look at this next one. <clears throat> and that was one in the New South Wales Highlands. That's called Watson's Crag. They're ready to get this photo and the sun came out just at the right time. And whether it's micro or whether it's macro, what God desires is when we see it that we'd go, I see design, I want to know the designer. 
I want to know the designer. Just as we finish tonight, I wonder if I could ask everyone just to close their eyes for a moment as we respond to God's word to us. You know, you could be here tonight and uh, you heard what we were talking about and it was of interest to you. You thought you'd come and check it out. And you've never actually heard about the fact that it's not just about being religious with regard to God. Maybe you thought it was all about trying to do things that would please Him or rules and regulations. But I've been saying tonight that it's actually about knowing Him and that scripture from the book of Romans that God actually wants us to see Him in creation that we might know Him. And perhaps you've never actually asked Jesus to come into your life and to be your Lord and your Savior. Well, right now, right here, I want to give you an opportunity that if that's you and you've never asked Jesus to come into your life before, you've you've never asked the Creator to be your Lord and Savior, just while everybody's eyes are closed, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. So if that's you, you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and you want to do that tonight and you want me to pray for you, just while everyone's eyes are closed, be brave, stick your hand in the air and say, Pat, I want to know Jesus. We hope you enjoyed listening to this message. For more information on what you've just heard or how to visit us, go to c3talgra.org.au. We hope to see you at church soon. Let's be.